0: (laughs) A reading from Galatians 6, um, 6 through 18. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule and to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Marie. Hi, I'm David Huntley. Uh, I'm an elder at College Church, and it's my privilege this morning to bring to you the final sermon in our series on Paul's letter to the four Galatian churches, which we have been studying together while Pastor Bill is on sabbatical. He comes back to this pulpit in two weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we, we give you this time uh, give us spirit-directed ears to hear your word so that it bears fruit in our lives. O oh Lord, may the, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our strength and our redeemer, amen. In my life, I see little and sometimes big signs in otherwise ordinary things that most people are prone to dismiss, even if they notice them at all. Um, To me, it's a sign of providence that I have this section of Scripture out of all of the letter of the Galatians. Now this is the closing of Paul's letter. You know, the part that we often, let's admit it, skip over or rapidly skim when we do our daily Scripture reading, right? After all, how important can the end of his letter really be? Well, the answer is that this closing is the critical, so what? And that's something I've spent a lot of time on during my career. I uh, I spent my career in finance and uh, over 25 years of it as a risk manager. Now, the quick story here is, some of you think that the risk manager's job is just to say no to everything because everything is risky, right? I mean, I actually get paid for that. Now, for the most part, all risks are borne by someone. Instead, my job was to work on transferring the risk at a cost to the party that was best able to bear it. And in economics, we call that the one with the lowest financial cost. So often, that's the party that's able to reduce the risk itself, if anyone can, and the rest is just a little bit of math and some legal structuring. So it sounds really easy, but uh, what makes it challenging is that people have different risk tolerances, and I mean the decision makers. In my job, I often had to convince a CEO to actually pay money to transfer a risk, and they often resisted at exactly the wrong moment. And while the typical CEO resisted, founder-type entrepreneurs were especially prone to want to gamble. They tended to believe in their specialness above all other people, and of course, that was their experience right up until it wasn't. Uh, and I once, uh, in fact, this, I think this illustrates it, I, I was leaving midtown Manhattan once after being part of a senior management team sales pitch. And I asked my then founder, entrepreneur, CEO for a ride back to the suburbs. So the team walked back to his car. He said, yes, sure. And, uh, and we got back to his car in the parking garage. And I discovered it was an Italian convertible. So I ended up sitting in the back between two men on the back seat. Not in the back seat, on the back seat. You know, like, Sitting on the seat, you know, holding on, and um, and no seatbelt, of course. So I'm holding on to the grab bar, keeping my head down because of the wind. And uh, he decided to drive about 85 miles an hour on the interstate and weave in and out of traffic just for fun. So uh, I decided to leave his organization shortly thereafter. But it kind of illustrates the point that uh, you know they're all different CEOs. Um, But even the non-founder types, the conservative CEOs, care little for armchair philosophers. They were very adamant on the so what. Knowing what could happen is not that useful. After all, you can't hedge every risk. Instead, knowing which one you have to worry about the most and what your organization should do in response to it and explain it to everybody in terms they can understand, well, that's what matters. So in other words, tell me what to do about it and why. So where am I going with this uh, and this emphasis on action? I think that we too easily, and I include myself in this, tend to spiritualize things and sometimes miss the practical aspect of what God is asking us to do. In fact, sometimes I think we spiritualize with the conscious or subconscious intention of compartmentalizing our lives so that we avoid doing what Scripture says. The Apostle James addresses this in his letter um, in chapter 2, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, What does this compartmentalization look like? Well, I was raised in a faith tradition that encouraged me to study Scripture well and to think deeply about how to apply it in my life but still, it provided endless examples of compartmentalization. Explicitly or implicitly, I somehow got the message that turning the other cheek might be great at church, but it's positively stupid at work. Uh, nobody This was the other thing. Nobody cares who comes in second, only winning matters. So always do what it takes to win. Somehow I absorbed that. But in this section of scripture, the one we are often tempted to skip over, Paul tells us the so what of having the right theology. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith. And while that requires no work or contribution on our part, merely our surrender, we shouldn't miss the work that Jesus did, right? Our salvation was not accomplished by Jesus knowing the right things and just telling us. His kingdom included going around and healing people and delivering people from various misunderstandings, deceptions, and oppressions. In the Gospels, Jesus addresses people's needs holistically and not just spiritually. And dare we not forget that the greatest act of human history that forever changes all things was Jesus going to the cross for our sins and his subsequent resurrection. Jesus was not foremost a teacher. He is a doer. Now throughout this sermon series on Galatians, you have repeatedly heard that adding circumcision to faith as a requirement for Gentile believers, which is the primary thing that Paul was addressing, is not adding anything meaningful at all to faith. As Pierre and Paul Sorrentino reiterated over just the last two Sundays and many other sermon series speakers before them, we are not saved by keeping the law. Nothing we do can cause God to love us more or less. God's love for us is never a matter of our performance or lack thereof. That's all true, full stop. So. Once we're saved, we can go about our business, right? Wrong. Paul closes his letter in which he has said, nothing we do uh, will help our salvation by telling the Galatian churches and us that this does not mean we have nothing to do. Quite the contrary. We are not just waiting to be swept away to heaven with a narrow understanding of the meaning of salvation. On the contrary, God has brought his kingdom to this earth, which he created, and his kingdom is gradually prevailing against the gates of hell, though those gates futilely try to maintain their death grip on those who do not yet know him. Okay, you say, so what does this mean for me practically? Well, God saved us because he loves us, and he has a mission for us. Belonging to Christ means we no longer belong to ourselves. Before Christ, we thought we belonged to ourselves. We thought we were ruling ourselves, but it was never really self-rule, but instead we were being carried along by the current of this world toward a waterfall of self-destruction. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul spelled out more directly the purpose God has for his saved children and why he leaves us here. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we heard two weeks ago that while we each have specific callings that can change over time, more generally they can all be succinctly summarized by the two greatest commandments, love God and love other people. And of course, that doesn't just mean the ones who are easy to love. In that way, our frequent prayer comes true. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is here now, and every person is either part of its building or futilely trying to man the walls to keep it out. I'm sure it surprises none of you this morning. I have... Three sections, somewhere, there they are, Uh, we reap what we sow, do not grow weary, and whom are you trying to please? And I hope the English majors agree with me that I did that right, okay, good. I always worry about that thing, the who, whom thing. All right, section one, in this section, Paul begins in verse six saying, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. This is a very practical way of living out the new kingdom. None of us would be in the kingdom of God if someone had not shared the good news with us at some point. Someone took the time, volunteered, made the effort, and we should be eternally grateful that they didn't go golfing instead. Not that there's anything wrong with golf. For me, it was Mr. Diggs who taught me in uh, in my fifth grade midweek Bible study class at Presbyterian Church of the Master in Southern California. And Mr. Diggs has a share in this morning. Salvation is entirely God's work. When we are saved, it's ours to merely surrender, to trust, and to begin obeying Christ our Lord. But God chooses to work through men and women to bring about the sharing of the good news. We are God's heralds to children and adults alike. Well, Paul goes on in this section to warn that God sees all. He will not be mocked, and what we sow is what we will reap. Now remember, Paul is talking to believers at this point. If we go on disobeying God and living by the flesh and ignoring the Holy Spirit's leading, if we pursue the wrong list from the second half of chapter 5, which we heard about from Pierre last Sunday, if we put other things before God, which is idolatry, or we make it a practice to indulge our sense of rage, enmity, strife, or anger, if we engage in divisions, envy, drunkenness, or sexual immorality, then we will end up bearing the fruit of those choices in our lives. There's a considerable amount of suffering in this life, and I do, and we should, have great compassion for those who are suffering. But if we're honest, we'll also admit that a shocking amount of our suffering is self-inflicted. But even setting aside the suffering in our lives caused by our own works of the flesh, such works have an additional cost. These works of the flesh represent kind of an opportunity cost. We waste precious time and resources that we could be investing in building God's kingdom, and instead we spend them on useless fleeting pleasures which will all too quickly pass away in this life. So just like nothing we do can add to our salvation or make God love us more, only what we do by the Holy Spirit in helping to make God's kingdom manifest here on earth has lasting value beyond this life. And we should want to create lasting value in the kingdom of God where we will dwell for eternity. Jesus, of course, told us not to store up our treasure on earth, which is uncertain, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where God himself keeps your reward secure. Right? We should not set as our end goal the accumulation of treasure on earth, not only because of the risk, um, but also because where our treasure is, Jesus says, there our heart will be also. And I think that it's fair to say that treasure isn't just money. Time, talent, money, they're all somewhat fungible. That is, time and money can be converted into talent. Time and talent can be converted into money in our culture. It's hard to make time, though. Uh, So seeing to one's... Uh, Training and then investing one's time, for example, is the same as investing money. Regardless of whether it's your time, talent, or money, though, and preferably some of all three, we want to make sure we're laying up treasure in heaven, or our hearts will be focused on the wrong place, Jesus says. One of my mentors in the faith used to say, "'The works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are like two dogs.'" Whichever one you feed more will grow stronger. If you feed the wrong one continually and the other sparingly, do not be surprised to wake up one day and realize that you are living with a voracious monster and can barely notice the fruit of spirit in your life. So from the moment you realize that you've been saved by Christ, you go from having only fed the monster to having a godly alternative and crucially with the Holy Spirit to help you, you immerse yourself in God's word and the fellowship of believers. But our choices thereafter will profoundly influence not only our destiny in this life, but somehow also aspects of our life to come. To be clear, it is always better to belong to Jesus, right? The thief on the cross that went to be with Jesus in paradise that evening, even though he never got to do much as a follower of Jesus, was still infinitely better off than the one who taunted Jesus like the Pharisees at his feet. However, because Paul tells us that eternal life starts now, it means that this life matters too. What we do to build God's kingdom here and now pays dividends of some sort in the life to come, if you'll excuse the kind of crude financial metaphor. Paul claimed that he preached the word to people like the Ephesians and the Corinthians. And when they bore good fruit for the kingdom, he had a share in that. When we invest our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of God's kingdom, we can have faith that regardless of what we see for the effort with our own eyes in the short term, God will reward us in the long term. Jesus said in Mark 1029, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come. So like an immutable law of creation, we reap what we sow, whether to our flesh or to the spirit. Therefore, let us be intentional and wise about sowing to the Spirit to build the kingdom of God. Doing good is wise. Now, there is a common problem that occurs to anyone sowing to the Spirit and working to build the kingdom of God, or as I prefer to think about it, making the kingdom of God that is already here manifest to those around us, and that is the subject of section two. We grow weary in doing good. I think that Paul felt weary sometimes. It certainly sounds that way in some of his letters. It must have been hard, I think, to labor so much and see the troubles of the Corinthians and the Galatians. It must have been hard to be in prison and to hear people spreading slander about you, your motives, and your work. He has firsthand experience about this temptation of which he writes. Think about that. Paul, who was caught up to the third heaven and received the gospel directly from Jesus, could become weary at doing good. I guess that should be an encouragement to us when we feel weary. It's pretty normal. But don't give up. Don't despair of loving your enemies when they don't respond the way you wish they would. Don't despair when your loved ones don't seem to respond to the gospel that would be so incredibly wonderful for them in this life, let alone for the life to come. Paul exhorts us to do good to everyone. Jesus used the example of God sending the rain on the deserving and the undeserving. Sending the rain upon those who knew to give him thanks for it and those who did not care about him. God extends grace to everyone. There is no one beyond his love and forgiveness for no one can earn his grace. Paul also exhorts us to especially do good to the household of faith. Here he extends the principle we also find in Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If God has given us the means, we cannot use our faith then as an excuse to not provide for our human families. And in the same way, for example, in Ephesians 2.19, Paul explains that the body of Christ is like an extended family. Finally, Paul reminds us here that we only have a share in the reaping if we do some of the sowing. We only have a reward if we keep on investing our lives in God's kingdom. In a real sense, it's our daily faith affirmation. For if we find ourselves holding back from investing in the kingdom, we need to ask ourselves what is going on with our faith. I think the agricultural analogy here is that of a farmer. He or she has planted the seeds and now needs to tend the crops. There are weeds growing and all of the farmer's hard work is at risk of loss. But then they look up and they see the cloudless sky And they think, hasn't rained in two weeks. The sky goes on this way. All of my effort today will be wasted. For the crop will fail whether I weed it or not. But it is at precisely this point that I think the believer has a secret weapon. Do you know what it is? For God has promised to reward what we give up, not what we achieve. In the end, Jesus is the one advancing his kingdom, with or without us. He invites us to join him as co-laborers in his vineyard. If we fear loss, we won't do the work. But if we trust the one who makes the promise, we will. For whatever the outcome, it belongs to him. Joan and I have a dear brother in the faith in Connecticut who was married to a non-believer, Debbie. She was Jewish and had some pretty strong reasons to distrust Christians, although I wondered at the time if she found Jesus compelling. And many people, and especially her husband, prayed for her all the time. Not only did we ask that Jesus would heal her of MS, but that her love for Jesus would increase and blossom into trusting faith. Though all we husbands are inadequate image bearers to our wives in some way, her husband was one of the best image bearers I knew in many ways, and yet nothing ever seemed to change. Joan and I were able to become more connected to them as a couple because um, Debbie said we didn't show up with an agenda. In fact, we made ourselves available, but otherwise we just loved them both. When she went into the hospital for the final time, we visited as she would allow, but mostly we just kept on praying. A few days before she passed, she stopped referring to herself as I and started telling her husband that we are the same now. And she told him, I have surrendered my life to Jesus. I just couldn't do it earlier, she said, because of my family and some days, honestly, I just didn't want to give you the satisfaction. (laughs) I guess she was feeling competitive almost up to the end. And her husband just wept. He was overcome by the thought that she finally loved Jesus who loved her more than anyone, and that she would finally be able to join him and so many others who had prayed for her over decades. So often, we really don't know the end result of our work. We plant a seed, we water a seed, we pray. I think that part of our time in the new creation will include coming to understand what positive roles we played in people's lives who we barely even thought we had touched. So don't give up, don't grow weary, keep on keeping on, doing good is wise. Our final section is whom are you trying to please? Ask yourself regarding those who wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised, whom were they trying to please in advancing their different gospel as Paul put it? What was motivating them? and whom was Paul trying to please by standing on a gospel of grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. Those preaching the gospel of grace and works, grace and circumcision, were motivated by their embarrassment about the cross of Christ. It was embarrassing, possibly even dangerous because of persecution, to talk about the Lord of the universe who was killed as if he were a common criminal and by the Romans at the request of his own people. Wouldn't it be so much easier to advance the faith if we downplayed that cross bit and just told people they needed to circumcise themselves as required under the Mosaic Covenant? But they were trying to avoid God's way, the reality of the cross of Jesus. In contrast to those who were embarrassed by the cross of Christ, Paul boasted in it. For it is through Christ's crucifixion that we, Christ's followers, he said, can become dead to this world and fully alive to the reality of Jesus as reigning Lord. It is through Jesus' death that the new creation comes, and circumcision has no bearing on the new creation either way. It's irrelevant to the new birth in Christ. Late in the fourth chapter, Paul switched from using you and I to we. At the beginning of his letter, Paul sought to persuade his hearers and they were hearers because his letter was publicly read, he tried to persuade them that they were making a terrible mistake that was fatal to the real good news about Jesus if they were requiring that Gentiles be circumcised to become like Jewish believers in order to belong to the people of God. But after the end of the fourth chapter, Paul assumes his hearers are now in agreement with him. And he begins to refer to their joint future together, our joint inheritance in Christ, and he uses the pronoun we. And then Paul closes his letter with two final statements before his benediction. Paul prays that peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule. That is, who realize that circumcision has no part of being a new creation in Jesus Christ. He also extends this peace and mercy to the Israel of God. This Israel of God is what we would call today Jewish background believers in Jesus. Why does he make this separate distinction? Aren't we all one in Jesus? Yes, we are. Remember Galatians 3.28, right? Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The reason I believe he makes this distinction is because he is arguing that faith plus circumcision still just equals faith. That is, circumcision adds nothing. I threw that in for the math nerds in the room. Uh, It's not needed, that is, circumcision is not needed to be part of the kingdom of God, nor does it make you a better or more committed follower of Jesus in any way. And of course that goes for any other work. But also being circumcision is no problem. The Israel of God, these Jewish background believers, just like Paul himself, were circumcised. And while it added nothing, he wanted to assure them he has no feelings of inferiority towards himself or them because they are circumcised. Although the bulk of the nation of Israel in the first century did not choose to follow Jesus at that time, many Judeans did, many priests and at least some of the members of the Sanhedrin did, and we know that from the Gospels. Explaining why most Judeans, by the way, did not follow Jesus at that time would take like its own sermon series to unpack, Um, but you can read about it in the book of Romans chapters 9 to 11. So while the early church was composed of Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus, it was because there were just so many more Gentiles in the world that in due course, the church seemed less and less Jewish. Well, so it's not just useful for us to consider the motivation of others, it is even more useful to consider our own motivation, lest we run our race in vain, right? I mean, I find it very helpful to ask myself when I'm about to take an action, whom am I trying to please? Is it Jesus? Am I seeking to be obedient to Christ or do I have a different motive? And if my motive is fear, then I know that it is not of God. So you and I should use prayerful inspection of our motives as a barometer to help us determine whether we are actually building God's kingdom in what we do. And when we think about the how of doing good, we need to recognize that loving God and loving people is God's way of building the kingdom. And doing good is wise. So in closing, I want to echo the words of Paul here in chapter six, in the closing of his letter, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that shines a light on our path. Guide us by your spirit into truth so that we will love you and love our neighbor better, all for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.